Rob Pringle is a professor of ecology, biodiversity, and conservation at Princeton University. He is fascinated by nearly all facets of ecology and conservation, and his research in his lab addresses a correspondingly broad suite of questions. His work on these questions is motivated by curiosity, and the questions are united by a single goal, to understand how wild ecosystems work by studying their modular components and emergent properties. Rob Pringle, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. It's so interesting, the work that you do. I first came across your work. I know you're working deeply with the Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. And it's just interesting to see the ways in which humans don't live within harmony with nature. And when I read about that there are elephants that are actually adapting to being hunted by not growing tusks. It's kind of shocking the ways that we expect nature to adapt to us. So just tell us a little bit about your your work there and what drew you to study ecology, biodiversity, and conservation. For me, the the initial spark of inspiration to, to go into this line of work was just a connection that I always felt like I had to nature and wild things, and especially to wild animals. And that's something that formed pretty early on in my childhood through being out of doors with my parents and taking nature walks and, and just being interested in wildlife. But I think it's also part of the lineage of, of humanity as well. We are, it's, it's very easy to get interested in these things because I think people are of nature and have we spent much of our evolutionary history, you know, living in, you know, much closer proximity to nature to the point where this whole sort of human nature duality is is only really something that, that makes sense to think about in very recent history. It's, it's something I'm instinctively drawn to study. I think the case of Gorongosa in particular is appealing for, for a couple of reasons. One is that it is a story of ecological damage that has been imposed by people, but it's also a story of ecological resilience that has been facilitated by people. It's a reminder of that a damaged ecosystem can you know, heal in dramatic ways over relatively short timescales, which is something I think that is really important to keep in mind as we think about these discouraging news about the impacts of humans on the planet and the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis, it's also important to keep in mind the recoverability of wild places and wild things. And I sometimes compare it to an injured patient. It is something that requires many things. It requires ambulance, hospital, doctors, nurses, and above all the body's healing and regenerative power. But you also want that process of healing needs to be guided by a working understanding of, of how the body works and they're guided by science. And so that's that's part of the other role and part of the other attraction of Gorongosa is that we can try to glean insights from this ecosystem as it's recovering from this major disturbance that are useful there and elsewhere facilitating the process of recovery. And I think we, and, you know, there's a lot we can learn about fundamental ecology and evolutionary biology while we're at it. And the, the elephant evolution of tusklessness in elephants is a good example, you know, something basic reminder that human activity can drive evolution, even of the world's largest animal, land animal on very fast timescales. 
Yeah, and it's I mean, that's a visual thing that we can see easily, and I just it makes me just wonder what are all the the minute ways that the those creatures that we're not aware of. I know you you're not just studying elephants; you've studied termites, you've studied you know just the whole ecosystem. So it makes us pause to think how large is this footprint we're leaving. But I love to hear that it's recoverable, and in particular the the numbers of the elements of nature that disappear through conflict, like 90%, you know, what, what are some of the, you know, promising examples of resilience that you've seen? Maybe could talk a little bit more about what, what Gorongosa is, because that's one of the foremost examples. So this is a 4,000 square kilometer national park in Mozambique, where wildlife was driven almost to the point of being eliminated during the Mozambican Civil War in the 1980s and early 90s, where since the mid-2000s, there has been a concerted effort by the Mozambican government in, in conjunction with partners in the private sector and one NGO in particular to rehabilitate the whole ecosystem using you know, science-based management principles and also trying to use that recovery of the, the national park to be an engine for economic development to help catalyze a regional transition out of poverty. And so that is when we talk about examples of resilience, Gorongosa is a great one because I've been going there, working there for the last 10 years. And even in that time, the transformation of the, the system has been remarkable from you know, a situation where things were clearly out of whack and animals were scarce to a place where animal populations are flourishing and there are lots of signs that the, the whole system is re-equilibrating. And that's just a 20-year process, right? Like when I was a kid, I internalized the message that once you lost you know, some piece of nature, that it was gone forever. And there is some truth to that, right? Because you can never literally resurrect something that was. But it, it's also a little bit misleading insofar as if you have still some fragment of what was left, you can actually grow it and tend it. And and within a well within a human lifetime, it starts to resemble something that is beautiful and I think powerful both, you know, in terms of like human perception and in terms of this functions that a that a healthy ecosystem provides to people. So that's a great example. I mean, there are others. There's a great example in Northwest Costa Rica, the Area de Conservación Guanacaste in Costa Rica, where similarly from scattered patches of remnant forest that were left in an area that had been essentially cleared and burned for cattle pasture for centuries, there is now an unbroken protected area that stretches from you know several kilometers out to sea in the marine sector into coastal dry forest up into mid-elevation rainforest up into high elevation cloud forest and a spectacular, beautiful place. Again, you know, there's there's some really striking photos of what it used to look like, where places where they've maintained the the old historical fire regime to provide a side-by-side -side comparison. You can go look, you know, there's this area that's just an open kind of pasture with invasive grasses. And then right next door to it is this forest that has grown up in, you know, in the last 40 years. It'll take hundred couple hundred years perhaps before that forest fully mature fully at some kind of steady state but it's nonetheless a forest right looks looks like forest feels like forest smells like forest <laughs> it has lots of forest animals in it Th these are the kinds of things that i think give me hope the examples that i want to highlight right I, I've, I've done work also on, on trying to 
kind of put numbers on the magnitude of the biodiversity crisis. And that, that there's a role for that, but there's, there are plenty of people doing that. And I think, you know, this is right now where we're starting the UN decade of restoration. And there's a reason for that, right? Our human footprint, as you said, is enormous, is planetary. There is no part of the earth that has escaped it, although the intensity is greater or lesser in different, different places. But there's a lot that we can do to, you know, rehabilitate damage systems and bring them back, make them healthy and whole again. It's wonderful to hear that because when we do hear, on the other hand, that like the Amazon goes from carbon sink to, you know, emitting carbon, it's not the end of the story. It's reversible. Or when we hear about their people, you know, time consuming, but greening the deserts. I mean, I never even considered it was possible to green the deserts. It's centuries of, they've been deserts. So it, it is possible from this come new shoots. That's absolutely true, right? I mean, it's a garden. For better or for worse, Earth is humanity's garden. And humanity chooses what gets to grow and where. And it's crops, beef, or it's forest and savanna, or it's desert, or it's a carbon capture project. Those are tricky decisions. Do we green deserts or do we let deserts be for the unique biodiversity that, that is adapted to living in deserts? There are important questions to consider. And, and sometimes there may be trade-offs to consider between, for example, climate stability and biodiversity. So I'm not trying to paint a too rosy a picture of the challenges that we face. And I'm not trying to say it's all kind of a big happy game and that there's you know there's going to be no no difficult choices to make and that we're not going to lose things that we care about because i think we will it's too depressing to to focus exclusively on what we're losing so i think that it's it's important to keep the positive stories and the hopeful stories in mind as well as we go forward and and let that give us also some sense of comfort so you've talked about species and ecosystem resilience in the face of rapid climate change, but what determines whether a species adapts, shifts their ranges, or goes extinct? Uh, that's a really good question. I think that the, the answer probably depends on which species you're talking about and which traits. And so there may not be just one answer to that, that question. Organisms are continuously adapting. The elephant study is that we talked about before, where elephants, the po elephant population in Gorongosa National Park, Mozambique, frequency of tustlessness has increased in response to this intense poaching pressure, right? Generation, basically, there's one generation or two generations of strong selection for there to be tustless elephants. There's intense poaching on tusked animals, so there's a huge survival advantage to not having tusks. So the frequency of tusklessness in the population goes up, right? But as poaching pressure declines, we expect that to go down. So there's this constant adaptation that's happening. Part of the question about, you know, what determines whether a species will adapt in the face of climate change, you know, depends on what trait is required for it to withstand whatever the new conditions are. And, and that in turn might depend on whether the limiting factor proves to be something about thermal temperature tolerance or something about the ability to withstand extreme climate events. The answer to the part of the question about species abilities to shift ranges has a lot to do with what kinds of dispersal, you know, what kinds of mechanisms are available, where they, where, where do they have to go? Which again, you know, if you're thinking about a little fragment of habitat surrounded by a vast agricultural homogeneous landscape, there may not be many, many places for them to disperse to, right? So there, there are a lot of these contingencies that make it hard to give a single 
answer to that question. We expect adaptation and evolution to constantly be happening. I think it's a big question mark whether and how frequently it will move fast enough to keep up with the changing conditions. One of the reasons that's so hard to figure out is that for most species, we don't really know what the absolute limits are to what they can tolerate. Or, right, we know kind of the the, the climate zone where they tend to to occur today, but oftentimes the the breadth of what they can tolerate is broader. So, you know, there's some indications, for example, that tropical ectotherms, so tropical species that can't regulate their own body temperatures, so not mammals or birds, but other things, it may have evolved particularly narrow thermal tolerance ranges, and so that they may be particularly vulnerable to a, a unit change in, in temperature, more so, for example, than similar species at high latitudes where where there's a much greater seasonal fluctuation in temperature and therefore species just have broader thermal tolerances. So it's a great question, also a complicated one, and, and I don't think there's a, a super uh, simple answer. Perhaps this next question falls under the same category of it. It is species dependent, but are you seeing any trends of how natural communities respond to the increased frequencies of extreme weather events predicted under global climate change? We are working on that a little bit. So in 2019, Cyclone Adai was the most powerful storm or tropical cyclone on record in the Southern Hemisphere, I believe, was basically a direct hit on the port of Beira, Mozambique, and Gorongosa. That has had some pretty potent ecological impacts in the sense that there were and a lot of animals died in the flooding that ensued. We've found evidence that small-bodied animals in particular were hard hit relative to large-bodied animals with, that could more easily move up elevation gradients to get out of the way of the flooding. These kinds of things, we do expect them to have ecological and probably evolutionary impacts. You know, in the short term, in the in the response to one one cyclone, the effects were noticeable, but not catastrophic. You know, we didn't see any populations being wiped out, anything of, to that degree, but there have been some shifts in the trajectories of different populations, right? So in some, in some cases, these kinds of events can be catalysts that help to nudge an, an ecosystem towards, or a set of species, a community towards a particular state or a particular configuration of, of relative abundance. But again, you know, I think that it's, it's a tough thing to generalize about. The thing that's important to keep in mind as a backdrop to all these kind of conversations is the importance of standing genetic variation. What I mean by that is the range of natural variation in in genotypes and associated phenotypes that organisms have, which is the raw material on which selection can act, right? Tuscos elephants did not come out of thin air in response to a surge in, in poaching pressure in Gorongosa's elephants, right? They, there was some mutation somewhere deep in elephant evolutionary histories or a set of mutations that resulted in a female elephant being born without tusks, right? Just by pure chance. And then selection regulates how frequent that trait becomes. And under ordinary conditions of low ivory hunting pressure, that trait should be fairly rare because there are some costs associated with not having tusks. But when the human 
poaching pressure and rapidly increases, then there's strong selection. Then you have a, actually have an advantage if you don't have tusks. So it's that range of variability that provides species and populations with the raw material that they need for, for basically for evolution to be able to act in this rescue capacity, right? So I think one, one of the take-homes is that trying to conserve large populations and, and genetic diversity within species is one thing that's likely to be important moving forward because the more standing genetic variation there is, the, the more likely there is for there to be that phenotype out there that can withstand the new conditions or the, the conditions as they change. A lot of people felt that that, or at least I saw, I saw some reactions on social media to the elephant tustlessness story as people being sad about what this said about the human footprint and, and human impact. And I can understand that and maybe even share it to some extent, that feeling. That's not my dominant emotion about the story. My dominant feeling about the that work and what we learned there was that it's a great example of how flexible and adaptable wild systems are and how powerful that evolutionary response can, can be. It's again, as much about recoverability and resilience as it is about the magnitude of the impact. These wild systems are both shifting and adapting and changing. Is there a way we can predict mechanistically how many species can coexist in any given area? I would say no. At present, we can't. Right? What what enables the coexistence and also what limits it? And there are, you know, there are there are many mechanisms that facilitate coexistence and a couple that limit it. But we do not have the capacity to, at this point, to mechanistically predict what that biodiversity threshold should be in any particular place. Right? We have some very elegant, but oversimplified by necessity mathematical models that give us insights into the mechanisms that allow species to coexist. But we have a poor ability to detect those mechanisms and infer their relative importance in the real world. And it's kind of a, you know, not an uncommon scenario in science where there's, you know, the theory is, is simple and beautiful, but very, very hard to either translate into a real world situation or to test because the, you know, the theory has a, the abstract conditions, you know, we're thinking about two species interacting in a, in a vacuum, <laughs> not in a vacuum necessarily, but a similar kind of abstraction is required to, for the math. And then how do you translate that into the messy real world where in addition to many more than two species, you've got predators and you've got weather and, you know, the abiotic constraints. This is always dangerous to say what I'm about to say, but I mean, if, if we ever got to that point, then I think we'd be done in ecology. That would be like the level where you, where you beat the boss and the game ends, you know, when you can, when you can actually mechanistically predict, you know, how many and which species should occur where. Once we've done that, that would mean that we fully understand how ecosystems work. So I think it's, it's an aspiration. Those are the kinds of basic questions that we're trying to answer, you know, quite independent of what implications they have for sustainability. We want to know that. I want to know that because that's, that gets to the heart of the whole field of ecology, you know, even an imaginary world where humans never rose, never were ascended. The kind of the fun thing for, at least for me, is that by studying places like Gorongosa that have been heavily damaged and, and disturbed and are now recovering, those kinds of situations like perturbations create opportunities to study things in, in different ways, right? And so you can get insights into, for example, the factors that 
regulate coexistence from studying situations where coexistence has been been heavily perturbed maybe more so than than you could get by walking into a place where everything's been coexisting stably and without fluctuation for a really long time from a purely scientific perspective these human perturbations can be again i don't want this to be misrepresented or mis misunderstood or for it to sound too blithe but it can be useful to, to study places that have been damaged, especially if those places are recovering, because we can learn basic core insights from those situations. It's, a, it's like an experiment, just not one that's run with the kind of control and replication that we would do if we were planning it, but it's an experiment nonetheless. Well, we were talking a little bit about geoengineering before, and it's, I had, we had a conversation yesterday about you know new solutions like you know alternative biofuels from kelp and and it makes me wonder because we still know i mean i think it's really exciting I mean, when someone tells me we can get to net zero if we you know transition and it's carbon neutral i mean who doesn't want to hear about that but again the oceans aren't explored so it's like what you're saying what you know what are putting giant kelp farms in and bringing you know and kelp elevators in the sea i love that it kind of help it's a solution but what does it do? We don't really, haven't really explored so much of the oceans, so. Yeah, this, this is, I think, where we're gonna face a lot of trade-offs. And the same is true for planning. We talked about green in the desert. The biome where I do most of my work, African savannas are grassy and people point out that trees can live there. You could afforest these places potentially for a, you know, a gain in carbon sequestration and storage, potentially, or not, even if it would, you know, suck carbon down and keep it stored here, would that be a worthwhile trade if it meant the destruction of this ancient grassy biome? They don't, there's no real objective answer. It's sort of a, it's a choice and it's a, a question of prioritization. And you could argue about, you know, what's more important and that's tough. So these, these debates are already happening. There's been a lot of enthusiasm about the idea of planting a gajillion trees and, and people are pointing out, right? Well, it depends on, first of all, you know, planting trees, maybe not necessarily the most effective way to enhance carbon storage capacity because naturally regenerated forests often do that better, but also that some places ought not to be planted densely with trees. Or at least if we did that, we would be fundamentally changing what those, you know, we would be extinguishing savannas that have existed for millennia and millennia to solve another problem. Exactly. The whole issue of uh, monocrops. And it's interesting because I'm actually speaking to terraformation later on today. Uh -huh. So uh, the question, interesting questions to pose. And you speak, you also, you know, study the how top predators structure communities. We are. I guess the top, unfortunately, you know, just, just go into a little bit about that, you know, what you've discovered or what it tells us about us and the, the influence of top predators is undeniable. We were just talking about kelp forests. One of the best examples of the importance of top predators is from kelp forests where sea otters are a keystone species that preys on sea urchins. And when sea otters are driven to low abundance or to extinction, sea urchins proliferate and eat the kelp forest down to the ground. And when sea otters come back, they eat the urchins and the kelp forests grow back. And it's a great example of top-down you know, regulation for, by predators that results in a healthier ecosystem. I think that you know, the human example, humans as super predators, 
shows the nuance in that, right? Like there are limits to the extent to which predation, you know, unregulated predation is a healthy thing. The problem is especially when, when the predator has other things that it can eat, right? Other than the prey and the one prey. So omnivorous predators, right? Can, we can go in and we can be absolutely ferocious predators on whatever prey we happen to be targeting. But when those prey go down to low abundance, we can simply switch to eating something else, right? We don't, we don't also crash because we ate ourselves out of house and home. We can switch, right? Nuts <laughs> and squirrels instead of antelopes or whatever. This is one thing that we, to kind of nuance is the, right? There's a simple story that you're tempted to tell that top predators are, are crucial and they're important, they're good. And, you know, I think it's generally the case that, that ecosystems that have evolved to have wild apex predators, I shouldn't say ecosystems that have evolved to have wild apex predators, but in general, in nature, having intact communities of large animals is correlated with the health of the overall ecosystem. But I've also studied examples where adding a predator doesn't increase the health of the ecosystem. It actually collapses the forces that maintain species coexistence. And humans are a good example of a, of a wide ranging apex predator whose influence isn't, isn't always or often stabilizing. I think a slightly nuanced narrative, but it's, it's important to, to keep that in mind that in nature, there are these, these built-in checks and balances. If the Arctic hares crash, then the lynxes crash too, and the Arctic hares re recover, right? Humans are a difficult kind of top predator because we are such generalists and because we're smart that can wipe, effectively wipe out a, a prey population and, and then just move on to the next one. Because every other animal knows how to live within balance with nature. Well, <laughs> yeah, not really. That's the thing is like every, it's not that, it's that those, those, are, those constraints are imposed. So every individual I think out there is animals, they, they're not thinking about sustainability and they're all trying to have as many offspring as they can there are these hard realities that come in and check them. We may face that too, eventually, right? So it may not actually be so different in the end, but you know, the one big difference is before we, you know, we're gonna take a lot of other species with us before we go. And I'm not, I'm not ultra pessimistic about, about this either, but the humans are globally distributed. You could say invasive, or you could just say cosmopolitan species. And we have a, we are, our population will flatten out at some point. It may dip, so we're we're gonna hit we're gonna hit some kind of ceiling as well. And then nature always finds a way to put people in check. It's just yeah, sometimes you can be punished for your your innovations can can punish you too. I think that that's the the one thing that I I, I like to just observe how you know animals in the natural world have this this kind of respect you you know i want just to, you to share some of your experiences in africa because i don't have that experience mm. but they don't seem to think that they're smarter than everyone and that's, that's mm. it seems to be mm -hmm. our particular mm -hmm. issue so in your you know in in africa or you you have projects in different parts of the world so many of us don't have this to really experience the wild. I think this may be an issue, as you say, we're cosmopolitan and we just don't have that experience. Maybe we would be more in awe and more in fear as well of, you know, how fragile it is. And people have other experiences. They go, maybe astronauts go to outer space and they see how small we are and how, mm. you know, how our atmosphere is very fragile. So just tell us a little bit about your experience of the beauty and wonder of the natural world. 
there's nothing like seeing a, an elephant, a like wild elephant for the first time. And that for me, not growing up with that, you see that and, and it, it is, it is very, there's something very, it connects in some way that's not, that I don't know how to fully describe, but it's very, yeah, majestic is one word, but there's also just something that there's just a resonance to that. And I, the evolutionary psychologists would argue that it all goes back to when we started walking on two legs in the savannah and these, these savannah things were all around us that we have this particular connection to, to savannas. And I don't know if that's true or not, but, but I know, I know it's, it's more or less true for me, right? There's something about a savannah environment and these, these animals that particularly connects. I've been to tropical forests. It does not have, they do not have the same kind of uh, emotional resonance for me. They do, they do for other people. So who really knows? My name is Triel Alstead, and I am in my final year at the University of Washington in Seattle, studying sustainable urban planning and architectural design. I am a sustainable cities and communities collaborator with the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. As I listen to Rob Pringle and learn more about his work, the resiliency of ecosystems through anthropogenic climate change amazes me. Climate change greatly threatens natural ecosystems and biodiversity, mostly through the increased intensity and frequency of extreme weather events. In response to climate change, ecosystems adapt and are resilient. The difference between the two being that adaptation is a process or action, whereas resiliency is a condition or capacity. As a scuba diver, I feel a close and more personal connection with coral reef ecosystems. A few years back, I had the very special opportunity to explore a coral reef off the coast of Hawaii. The sheer beauty and the number of species present and interacting with the reef was overwhelming. The physical structure of the coral reef and underwater caves were majestic. Unfortunately, the beauty, but more importantly, the health and biodiversity of this ecosystem is at risk. Anthropogenic climate change is the greatest threat to these underwater ecosystems through the warming of the atmosphere and oceans, ocean acidification, and the increased presence of greenhouse gases. As global temperature increases, widespread coral bleaching, infectious coral disease outbreaks, and the introduction of invasive species are rapidly destroying Earth's coral reefs. A resilient coral reef means one that can withstand these events or bounce back from their devastating effects. Efforts are underway to promote the restoration of and stimulate the resiliency of these coral reefs, already showing promising results from certain case studies, such as ones in, done in Hawaii and Puerto Rico. While many are simply community efforts, international organizations also lead initiatives to actively protect coral reefs' resiliency so they have a better fighting chance against anthropogenic climate change. It's a good reminder to be walking out there of what it must have been like for our ancestors, <laughs> you know, and that, and, and that the possibility that you could be prey or you could be perceived as a predator by something much bigger than you that can easily kill you. And another thing I tell, tell my students in, in trying to encourage them to have the kind of experiences you're talking about, experiencing some of the non-human built is I say that it's healthy to know what it's like to fear for your life in that way and not in the kinds of things that we are chronically fearing now on it, right? I mean, these things that are whittling away at, at our 
ability to joyfully exist, you know, worrying about climate change, war, fascism, what else, everything, you know, worrying about what so-and-so said on social media. And it's so exhausting and it just rings you out. And it is possible to feel very far away from all that stuff. And I know because I, you know, I periodically do that when I, when I go out through the field and do this work, right, you might as well, might as well be a hundred years ago or 300 or a thousand. That's special. I, my wife and I, and a former postdoc of mine almost got trampled by a black rhinoceros. They're critically endangered species. My favorite species, I think, if I had to pick one, just for how weird and yeah, they're just strange animals, strange looking. And, you know, they've got a certain grace, but also this ungainliness. And we were out trying to trying to collect a fecal sample and, and you know made too much noise and woke woke up mama and she was with baby and they chased us and it was ooh hairy and that is one of that's i look back fondly on that experience right i mean be, partly because the the outcome was happy right nobody got hurt but also partly because it was it was okay that's when you're really connected i mean you're really connected when that's happening that is a adrenaline spike like nothing else. And it does. Yeah, you do feel fragile a little bit. But it's also, you know, I, I've also been I've also been out on the field walking around and and lions run away, which is which is very, you know, that that sort of makes you feel your own. It's like, oh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm a big deal out here in the savannah. Even the lions are afraid. And, you know, as they, as they should be. <laughs> Not not of me, but of people in general, and you know, so that could also maybe you know, you could you can feel fragile and you can feel you know maybe cocky simultaneously out there, just judging by, by on how those species react to you. I'm wondering, does your music help you? You talk about going, you know, in, into the wilderness and you know forms of communication that are not verbal. Does that help you tune in? I mean, I don't know. Do you write music about your experiences or not? Not so much, but I, but I, I, I do think that the whole. I do think that what I do is 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 more or less an artistic process, but with different rules, slightly different rules, or may, you know maybe with more rules, right? I mean, but but fundamentally the same there's a story that I'm trying to tell. And the rule is it has to be, you know, true. And, you know, in a certain sense of being verifiable, repeatable, and documentable with data, but it's nonetheless, it's a, it's an interpretation and, and starts with a, with a spark of, of curiosity involves a lot of, of creativity in terms of figuring out what's the best and most convincing way to tell this story. And I don't think it's different. I mean, you could, you could tell me, but for, for most artists, right, they're trying to express something and there's decisions that go into what is the medium and what is the, you know, how best do I express the thing that I'm trying to express? So, you know, science is, it's, it's not quite art, but it's, it's also not quite different. And at least not as different as I think it's the, the caricature would be that these things are on opposite sides of some kind of spectrum. But I, I feel that there's a, there's a, a lot of artistry in my scientific process, you know, even though ultimately the DNA sequence is what the DNA sequence is. And I, and I can't change that. But, but the process of creating a piece of science, I think, is not, it has as many parallels with the process of, you know, creating a piece of music or a piece of dance or piece of writing or a fiction or writing or a painting. 
I think there is a, a something about uncovering truth and what is already there and and also what you're directly involved in, you know, trying to, you know, live, you know, I I, I see it as this uh, point of way that we could live in greater harmony with nature and, you know, all, all these things, I think they're very related. So in closing, you know, as you reflect uh, on your work and education and you know, the challenges we face, the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. You know, what teachers and life lessons have been important to you? You know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I mean, one of the most important teachers was a college professor who taught me a different way to think about the recoverability of nature. So some of, a lot of the, the themes that I've been talking about this whole hour have been things that I first encountered, ideas that I first encountered in this college class. And and this was someone who was who was intimately involved in the restoration of this tropical forest system in, in Costa Rica. And and that was at that time very new to me, the notion that ecosystems could be restored. Right. Of course now that's take that for granted and many other people have heard of it as well, but it was very different than the messaging about tropical forests that I had always lived with and the notion that the way you protect nature is you put up a fence or you know you send out the, the the guards or the army if you have to and round up anybody who sets foot in you know where they're not supposed to um, this is a very different attitude more inclusive more sort of human oriented in a way more humanistic but also more more open-ended and optimistic in the sense that you're taking you're not just kind of protecting surrounding the wagons and protecting what little shards and fragments you have left but actually thinking about how do we regenerate and how can we you know let something bigger and grander grow out of what's left so that was very that was a very instrumental thing in in my in my development but there have been you know there's so many people so many influences too um again i i think like like an artist maybe who who picks up you know different things that they see or no, notice right that people operating in different spheres can still can still leave an impression right everybody from business people to athletes to what have you right it can leave some kind of mark on your consciousness that influences how you how you think about things and and so yeah there, there have been a ton of of influences on me i think the most important the thing that i try to convince my, my course my classroom of 70 Princeton students every year and the thing that I'm trying I'm, I have a two two two-year-old daughter and the thing that is one of the things that's foremost in my mind as I think about her and what kind of childhood I want her to have is just the importance of unplugging all the stuff every once in a while and getting out there and appreciating you know natural beauty for what it is and this is something that maybe the most existential threat to biodiversity is human indifference because if we don't if we actually don't care about this stuff if we retreat entirely into these built worlds and you know built obviously includes everything virtual then right i said i said early on that everything on the planet earth is 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 a garden and and what and right now humanity chooses what grows and it could be a rainforest or it could be you know a 120 story building growing crops on every floor um you know or i don't know what right i mean so and for 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 nature and natural beauty to survive there has to be people have to want it and if they don't ever experience it 
the, why why should they want it right what 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 could they see of you know a value in it something that you never not only have never experienced but don't ever expect to we we sort of maybe intellectually know that the amazon is an important thing because it stores carbon and and it's home to many species but you know, I've been there and it, it's, that's a different thing entirely to be able to appreciate it on that level and care about it for those reasons, you know, the, the, for the, the sheer beauty and magic and joy of being in a place that's still so big and so, so wild. So that's, that I think is the most important thing for the next generation. The two things, the hope, the optimism in resilience, but also the, the drive to get out there and experience it so that you're able to care in the way that you'll need to if any of this is going to make it well you know thank you for your honesty in that because it's full of the hope but also we it has to matter to us so thank you so much uh, rob pringle for your work which helps us appreciate natural beauty understand ecological resilience and conservation and for shining a light on multiple species justice and planetary health so that we can better manage and live in harmony with ecosystems we all live on one planet we call home thank you for adding your voice to one planet podcast and the creative process thanks mia this was a fun fun conversation This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Trielle Alsted with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interviews producer on this podcast was Trielle Alsted. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browis. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.